in a sense, this morning is the culmination of our creation symposium in that we're going to be looking together at Psalm 148. So I want to go ahead and ask you to turn there with me to Psalm 148. And if you would read along silently as I read aloud, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts. Praise him sun and moon. Praise him all you shining stars. Praise him you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. And he established them forever and ever. He gave a decree, and it shall not pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and rulers of the earth. Young men and maidens together, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints. For the people of Israel who are near to him, praise the Lord. As you see there in your bulletin, we said that this morning we will examine the character and creation of God so that we will praise him. Sometimes the so that statements can get a little lengthy, and maybe by the time you get to the end of it, you're not sure where you started. Not so with this one. It couldn't be any simpler, I don't think, as to what the psalmist is communicating here. He's commanding us to praise the Lord. I have four points for you from this text this morning, but I confess to you that the grammar of this Hebrew text is substantially different from what we've been looking at in the Greek text of 2 Peter. And so it's not going to fall off the bone, so to speak, as easily as it sometimes does. But I do believe that what the Lord has for us here is clear and that we can gain not only much encouragement, but much strength to move forward in our lives in Christ to honor him despite whatever difficult circumstances may be in our lives today. We don't know anything about the author. We Actually, that's not necessarily true. We might know. We just don't know who it is. So we refer to this really as an anonymous psalm. Our text begins with a command, as I said, though, and that part's clear. It is to praise the Lord. In fact, this is the first of two bookends with an identical command to praise the Lord. If you go to the end of the psalm, you see the exact same verbiage, and it's only stated precisely this way twice in this psalm. Otherwise, it's slightly different, but in the beginning and in the end, it is praise the Lord. This is hallelujah. That's where we get this word, hallelujah. It means the same thing as praise the Lord. So it's sometimes translated or actually transliterated as hallelujah. The Hebrews knew the book of Psalms as the hallel, from this term, the book of praises. The word, hallel, is to be clear. It's to shine. It's to make a show. It's even to boast. It's to rave, really, to celebrate, to glory, to give light. It is to give in marriage. It is to praise. It is to show renown. So it's a word that comes with a wide spectrum of description or definitions. But ultimately, the idea that the psalmist is communicating to us is the need to be engaged in boasting. Now, with some general perspective on biblical Christianity, one might initially think, that doesn't sound right. I thought we were to be humble. I thought we were to think less of self and more of others. That's right. That's exactly right. And you know from Jeremiah 9, verse 23, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, 
But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. We've been over this passage with somewhat of a bird's eye view a number of times. And the uh, implication here is that the one in whom you are boasting is the one who has done the work. Were you to boast in you or in what you have done, you would be making a stab at stealing glory from God that he and he alone deserves. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says similar things. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And nothing could be more appropriate for understanding of Psalm 148 in light of the reality that there are those, and it's not unusual, it's quite common in our day for those to boast in themselves and even to boast in the creation while not boasting in the Lord. In fact, somehow, almost mysteriously, to remove the creator from the boasting of the creation. So Paul says, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. If you are to boast, boast in the Lord. Boast about the fact that you know him. And if you understand how you came to know him, then you understand that that does nothing to draw attention to you and only to draw attention to him. Further in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So, let no one boast in men. I think I've told you this story before, but my sister worked for a man years ago. She had told me that it was a, a little bit more than difficult every day just to go to work because of this man's puffed-up view of himself. And at one point, they had some sort of work party at his home. And she said, I'll never forget when we pulled up into the driveway, and there was this 10-foot statue of him. <laughs> and at the bottom, it said, self-made man. It should be no surprise that that man lost his business and everything. It doesn't always go that way, but it does seem timely for a man to think that he somehow has made himself. That's not what the phrase self-made man means. Not that he made himself, but that he made his success. But did he somehow experience success without God's intervention? Bring him to the place where he was able and even equipped to do whatever he did? Don't boast in men, certainly not yourself. In 1 Corinthians 4, verse 7, what do you have? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? This really separates biblical Christianity from man-made Christianity, which is not Christianity. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is specific church discipline. Try this in a modern New Testament church, and many people will say, well, I don't really like that. But it's the command of the Lord. You're to deliver this man to Satan in the presence of the church. And then in verse 6, and you know he's writing to the Corinthians, they got a lot of problems. And as he writes to them, he says this, very clear, 
your boasting is not good. What has happened is the Corinthians had come to think much of themselves because they were faithful in certain areas, but there was this glaring issue of their lack of willingness to deal with the adulterous relationship that a man had with his stepmother. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Clean up the church. Deal with those who refuse to repent of their sin. Why? As Paul has said, for their salvation. The most unloving thing we could do as a church or you could do as an individual is to dismiss the significance of someone's unrepentant sin. In particular, the person who claims to be a member of the body of Christ. Paul says, turn that man over to Satan. What does that mean? Is there some sort of formal walking that person to the gates of hell? Here you go, Satan. Here's this guy. Now, the point is he's already a child of Satan. Treat him as if he is. Love him as if he is not in Christ because he's not. Love him. Minister to him. Serve him. But don't lie to him about his spiritual condition. You see the context is pretty significant. But what had happened was this church had begun to boast in itself because it was doing some things right, doing some things well. And yet this essential primary issue somehow had fallen off their target. So Paul says to them, your boasting's not good. You're really missing what's going on here. This phrase in our text this morning is praise the Lord, praise Yahweh, boast in Yahweh. Yahweh in the Hebrew has no vowels, and so your neighbors or your potential friends who want to convince you that it absolutely must be pronounced Jehovah are either unaware or dishonest about the fact that there is no letter J in the Hebrew language. There's no phonetic sound J in the Hebrew language. Is it wrong to say Jehovah? No, it's not. It's simply a, an English transliteration of a German transliteration of a Hebrew word. It took a while to get there, and it's not wrong but it's also not exclusively right. The more literal translation, as far as we know, is Yahweh. And we don't even know that because there are no vowels in Hebrew. We don't know. We did, there were no video recordings back then or audio recordings, so we don't know how they pronounced it. But we can guess relatively intelligently that it was pronounced and should be pronounced Yahweh. In an effort to avoid taking the Lord's name in vain, the Orthodox Jew of Jesus' day wouldn't even say it. They referred to God, get this, you don't need to write this down, they referred to God as the ineffable tetragrammaton. Now that wasn't just some cool made-up name, ineffable simply means unspeakable, that you cannot say it. Tetragrammaton has to do with the four-letter root of the word Yahweh, yod Hey, wow Hey, the Hebrew letters for the term Yahweh. Why am I telling you this? Twice in this psalm, we are called to praise Yahweh. What does Yahweh mean, by the way? It's God's name, but that's not what it means. God's name, Yahweh, simply means to exist. Now, that might seem a little anticlimactic. But the idea in Hebrew, because there is no tense, there's no past, present, future, the idea that he exists speaks of what? Who would guess what that speaks of? That God exists. His what? His eternality. So we praise the one who is eternal. Now think of it again in our context today when there's so much going on, especially now with new revelations about the planet Pluto or the moon Pluto, that we would want to praise those who have done this work. And nothing wrong with giving credit where credit is due. I think we should do that. But the real issue is the one who created Pluto. 
and the greatness and the majesty with which he created not only Pluto, but everything else he created. And maybe the better issue for your practical purposes and mine is the chronology of it. What do I mean by that? The time during which God existed prior to all that, that's kind of the issue. If we can get that straight, if we can remind ourselves and rest in the reality that God existed in eternity past before anything else existed, then that puts everything in perspective. And so, of course, the doctrine, if you will, of evolution has done everything possible to do away with that chronology. In fact, there is no chronology with relation to God because God doesn't exist in evolution. There are all kinds of implications with regard to that. But what we're saying here and what the psalmist is saying, what you and I should be saying, and I would encourage you to make this a, a regular statement in the mornings and the evenings of your life, is that we are to praise the eternal one. We are to set our affections and our intellect upon him. We are to think about him. And I'm like you. I get distracted by other things in life. One of the really, really good distractions in my life is my wife. I've got five, now six other distractions in my life that I love with immense joy. And as you know, in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul speaks of those things as what I like to call good distractions. But it is possible for us to get our minds focused on other things, on other activities, on other pursuits. Those things have to be kept in perspective, and they can only be kept in perspective if our lives are, in fact, devoted to praising the eternal one. If that were to be the, you know, the constitution, so to speak, of your life, that every day you would simply say, today my goals are, oh, there's just one, praise the Lord. And if you were to do that throughout the fulfillment of the essential responsibilities that you've been given, then your life would change drastically. And maybe you can say, my life has changed drastically because that's who I've become. I've become a person who recognizes not only from Psalm 148, but from other passages in the Bible, in fact, the whole of the Bible, that God is praiseworthy. And that's why we praise him. Point number one. I want you to see praise brought forth from angelic creation. Kind of a long point, but you can see how I get that right out of this text. And I encourage you to follow closely along in your Bible with this text especially. Follow closely along as we walk through this. I want you to see praise brought forth from angelic creation. And really to say it more literally, we're talking about praise being drawn forth or really commanded, right? This is an imperative. You recall the difference between an imperative and an, and an indicative, and we'll see both in this text. The indicatives are the statements, the statements about God, the statements about what he has done. The imperatives are what you and I are to do. If we were to look at what God has said regarding his sovereignty and say, well, then why do anything? Then we've forgotten the imperatives. The indicatives do not erase the imperatives, right? The statements do not erase the commands, they're of equal veracity and power and value. Verse 1 says, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights, another word for the heavens. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. The psalmist here calls on the angelic host in heaven, who, by the way, predate God's work of earthly creation to praise the God who created them. He's calling upon created beings who are of another realm. We don't understand angelology, really. We have some information. Most of the information that's been brought to your attention in our day has come from the movies, and it's all wrong. There is a fixation on angels in our day. Nothing wrong with thinking rightly about angels. Do angels exist? Yes. Do angels minister to us? Yes. Do you know when it happens? No. Exclamation point. You can't know. You know, you've heard people say, you know, an angel came to me. Oh, stop. Because <laughs> you don't know that. I remember a friend telling me one time he was hitchhiking way back, and he you know, was picked up by this guy, and the guy gave him his business card, and he was in the middle of nowhere, and it was snowing, you know, and it was terrible. And this guy picked him up, and he tried to get a hold of him later, and he couldn't because he just wanted to thank him and send him $5 or something. And 
turns out the guy didn't exist, so it was an angel. I mean, he was that convinced, and the sort of euphoric experience that the movies give us today make us want to have that euphoric experience, and I suggest that's because we have a low view of God's word. We don't find God's word to be completely sufficient for the experience that we need and must have in Christ, and so we want something other than the truth of his word. But angels are created to worship him. And you say, well, why would the psalmist then command them to do that? Really what the psalmist is doing, and you'll see it throughout this text, for the most part, is declaring that which already exists to be right, that which is already going on to be right. In Isaiah 6, which I almost hesitate to jump into because it's such a magnificent and rich and powerful and and lengthily helpful text that To just read it would not do it justice, but I think it will be helpful to you and me to understand what the the psalmist is calling for. And because of the chronology of how he's doing this, I think there's a sense in which he's calling you and me to follow the example of the angels. Isaiah 6 verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And that's their job, that's their passion, that's their commitment. To call attention to that which is reality, the separateness of God. Some have referred to this as the thrice holiness of God. That God is not only different, but that he is above us immeasurably and infinitely and beyond comparison. It is somewhat of an insult to say about God that he is greater than we are because it almost sounds as if we've put ourselves on some sort of scale with him, he being a 9 or 10, and we maybe a 1 or a 3. When the angels cry out to him and about him, it is about his separateness, his otherness, that his ways are higher than ours, and that he is above us. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, The whole earth is full of glory. There's much more here that we don't have time for. But I encourage you to go back to Isaiah 6. When you've gotten dry, when you've found yourself to not want to praise the Lord, when the circumstances of your life have so overshadowed the greatness of God himself and the separateness who he is, the uniqueness of God. Point number two, praise brought forth from inanimate creation. Praise brought forth from inanimate creation. What does inanimate mean? It means that it really doesn't have a person or it is not a person. It's not animated in any sense at all, volitionally. It, has its, it doesn't have its own will. But we see here in verses 3 and 4, particularly, this inanimate creation called upon to praise. And again, remember, this is an imperative. It is a command. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Does this not sound like the creation account in Genesis 1? Those things, those entities that God clearly stated that he created, being called upon to declare his eternality. Why, again, though, would the psalmist call upon not only these inanimate objects who, in a sense, already exhibit the praise of God, but who can't really engage in that volitionally. 
It is because it's already going to happen. The psalmist, in a sense, can look back and say, it was my heart, it was my desire that not only I, but all those who would listen and read what I have to say would, in fact, see that that's what the sun and the moon and the stars do. We don't have time to go into the depth of the immensity and the detail of God's glory displayed in what the sun actually is, nor the moon, nor the shining stars. But I want to draw your attention to one small modifier, and that is the word all. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. How does that work? It is that no man, no other creature, no other entity could create something that would bring glory to God in the way that a star does. I don't understand stars. I don't understand how they hang where they hang. I don't understand in that what they are made of, they don't simply explode. I don't understand how all the stars are not falling stars. I don't understand any of that. And in truth, there really is no one who really understands it in its fullness. There are those who understand it a lot better than I do. But what we do understand is that this is something, the stars, all of them, declare the glory of God, the eternality, the greatness of God. And so the claim, the really command for them to do so, almost seems unnecessary. But again... This sets a pattern for you and for me. In that they inevitably, involuntarily draw attention to the Lord who created them. Gives us an example for how we too ought to praise him. But is it not remarkable that there will be those who will say that somehow these things came from nothing? Or maybe they came from something that came from something that came from nothing. But to quote John MacArthur with regard to this and really the whole matter of evolution, it is nothing times no one equals everything. It's quite senseless to say that somehow the shining stars do not have a creator. How is it, though, that you and I can praise him? Why would we praise him? Because of his creation. Not only because of what he has created, but because the creation itself praises him in its very existence. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Again, that firmament where water is separated from itself back to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And you see the matter of creation unfolding really in a way that grammatically and verbally we don't quite understand it all. But we can say that only God could create what was created, and he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. Now in verse 5, there is not just the statement that these things praise the Lord, but that they praise the name of the Lord. Let them praise the name of the Lord, verse 5 says. As one's name is his standing, his reputation, his renown, it is so of the Lord. We've already talked about what God's name is, but I want to briefly draw your attention to Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people, now put yourself for a moment in Moses' position. Moses is frightened. God's called upon him to be his ambassador to the people of Egypt and to go to Pharaoh and and say to the most powerful man in the world, "Um, let my people go. So Moses needs a little bit of motivation here. He needs a little bit of help. God help me, what should I be telling them? If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Yahweh. More literally, tell them to exist, to exist. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. So not only tell the enemy, but tell my people, I am has sent you. Now that would mean something different to the people of Israel than it would to the people of Egypt and to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, as you know, would and did mock at such a statement. 
but unfortunately it didn't mean what it should have meant to the people of Israel. And in John 8, 58, after back in verse 25, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, who are you? In verse 58, his response is, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. In Greek, ego, me," which is the Septuagint's Greek translation of the Hebrew, to exist. So in this moment, Jesus has given you and me substantial reason to believe that he is God, if not for other texts, multiple other texts in the scripture. But our hearts should swell with joy when we talk to people about Jesus, explaining that he is not simply a man, but that he is the God-man who deserves and is worthy of praise. But why? Why? Should they? Why should we? Why should anyone praise the Eternal One? Why should we praise Yahweh? Well, three reasons. There are three reasons why this command is given. First, continuing in verse 5, for he commanded and they were created. That's enough. They commanded and they he commanded and they were created. He spoke them into existence. That he created Adam out of dust and created that dust out of nothing should cause us to say, that's amazing beyond our comprehension. Therefore, we will praise him. So he made them also, second, he made them eternal for his praise. So he not only spoke them into existence for his praise, I should have said that, he, he spoke them into existence for his praise, but he also made them eternal for his praise so that he would be praised eternally by them. Listen to verse 6. And he established them forever and ever. So the command then to let them praise the name, let them praise the name Yahweh, the name that represents the eternal one, is followed up by these very clear reasons for doing so. A third of those reasons continues in verse 6, and that is that he decreed that his praise will be forever. He decreed it. And this really troubles those with a man-centered theology because they will say things like, well, if he decreed it, then why would I do it? He's going to cause it to happen. You've seen that flippant sort of distant, disinterested attitude toward things that God says about himself. And so, again, we're looking at the reality of the grammar, the literary elements of the Bible, if you will, and that is that there are indicatives and there are imperatives. So God has said this about himself. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. It is his eternal, sovereign, ordained decree that these things would praise God, that they would praise Yahweh, and yet it is commanded that they do so. And again, the point for you and me is that we would follow that example. Think of it. There's a sense in which you praise God even when you don't. In that you are anatomically so specifically detailed and so amazingly expressive of what only the creator could create. The, the very essence of your existence expresses the glory of God. And so you inadvertently and involuntarily praise him by just breathing. But you and I are to look at that reality and not just jump in line, but to passionately praise him for who he is. And these three reasons are more than sufficient, are they not? That he spoke these things into existence for his praise, that he made them eternal for his praise, and that he decreed that his praise will be forever. Well, point number three, I want you to see praise brought forth from sea creatures, land animals, flying birds, and other creation. Long point, I know. I didn't know how to avoid getting all that on there. It's all important. Praise brought forth from sea creatures, land animals, flying birds, and other creation. That kind of gets me off the hook for giving all the details. Uh, but this other creation is more inanimate reality. It's more inanimate creation. Let's look at it. Praise the Lord from the earth. So he's moved from the heavenly realm to the earthly realm. That's obvious. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures. 
and all deeps. What great sea creatures is he referring to? Well, what we know that, about them is that they're great and they're creatures. That's about it. But as you know, the scripture refers to the Leviathan and the behemoth. And Matt did a great job of helping us understand what those things probably are not during our creation symposium. But we do know that God has created them to be great, and he has created them in such a way that they inadvertently, involuntarily praise the Lord. And then he goes to matters of inclement weather, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word, fulfilling his word that all things will praise God. That fulfills his word. It fulfills God's word that all things will praise him when inanimate objects involuntarily praise him. When you see something like fire, now momentarily you might think initially, well, fire, that's something that man makes. Really? Does man not have the ability to create fire because God created fire and created man so that he could initiate it? When you see fire, you and I ought to immediately think that is an expression of something that only God could create. The same with the wind. The same with all inclement weather, really. We first think, oh no, here we go. Now here's a moment of practical application for you. When you start, you know, getting into whatever mood you get into, when the weather changes to something that you're not so fond of, would it not be better to say praise the Lord? And not just to say it, but to be thankful for the weather that you do like, that you have for the most part, and even to be thankful for the weather that you have that you don't necessarily find to be so wonderful. You know, it would only be a few more degrees hotter if the sun were just a little bit closer and we'd all be incinerated. So it probably is right, timely, appropriate for us to praise God for exactly how he has established things in the universe such that the weather is what it is. And when we see it, we experience it, we should praise him for it. Mountains and hills, fruit trees and all cedars. This is an interesting combination of trees here, isn't it? Fruit trees, quite different from cedars. Fruit trees, expressive of God's provision for our nourishment and our sustenance. Cedar trees, expressive of our protection from inclement weather. Cedars used for building homes, other buildings. Mountains and hills, of course. You can't look at a mountain range and not be amazed by the beauty, the extensive detail. And then beasts and livestock, creeping things and flying birds. Now, you might look at some beasts and say, I'm not sure I could praise the Lord over that pit bull. I'm not sure I could praise the Lord over, I don't know, a cocker spaniel. I, I, I don't know. Maybe you have your favorite. Maybe you have animals that you look at and think, you know, they're not quite as good as these other animals. But either way, whatever it is, a creeping thing, which is a snake, a lizard, livestock, flying birds, whatever it is, it's expressive of God's creative work. And so the command for these things to praise him will come to fruition. Do you see that? When the psalmist commands these things to praise him, you can be certain that they will, not because they choose to, because as we said, they're inanimate, but they praise him involuntarily. Well, point number four, praise brought forth from all people. When I say brought forth, in each of my points, yes, I'm pointing to the reality that there is a command that is intended to bring forth praise from these things or really is a call to bring forth praise from not only inanimate objects but also those that have volition, that have a will, that have the ability to choose to praise him or to choose not to praise him. And it's interesting the order that the psalmist used here. He says, kings of the earth and all peoples. And then he goes back to royalty or Governing rulers, he says, princes, and all rulers of the earth. I think there's an obvious emphasis on the need for those who are in positions of authority, in positions of royal governance, to be reminded three times. Your role is to praise the Lord. Now, again, we're talking now about people. We're talking about those who have a volitional ability. They can choose to respond 
in one way or another or some combination of both. But the command is to praise. The command is to draw attention. The way we like to say it is to put God's glory on display. To do so in such a way that to take attention off of oneself and put it on God. That's very, very difficult for a person in a position of substantial governmental authority. He begins often to think he is God. And in certain forms of government, the idea is that he is a God. Caesar was convinced that he had convinced Rome that he was a God. More than one Caesar had done that. Why? Because it was true. Not true that he was a God, but it was true that they'd become convinced. And so when Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, you can see how that might be an offense to a person who has come to know the Savior. He thinks he's freed from all of that. The point is, get it in perspective. Think rightly about the government. But the call here is for the government, those who are in positions of ruling authority, to praise him. And it is often not the inclination of those in positions of authority to do so. One of the most obvious and really glaring examples is the person of Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3. Did you know or do you remember this? I think you probably do on some level that Nebuchadnezzar ultimately says this, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel And he delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. How? How did this immeasurably, infinitely arrogant, rude, despicable man who walked along the top of the gates of his kingdom saying, Ain't I great? Become humbled to the point that he would praise the Lord. Well, I don't have to tell you. It was the example of these young men who some would say had nothing to lose. But were they to bow the knee to Nebuchadnezzar? What kind of testimony would that send to Nebuchadnezzar? Beloved, apply this to your own life. Are you praising the Lord? And I'm not talking about being the obnoxious person that runs around, you know, and finding believers at every gas station saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, you know. Just intentionally being the annoying person that never really has any effect on anybody. But I'm talking about the more substantial relationships in your life. And maybe those momentary opportunities where you're given opportunity to explain why you have the hope you have. What about your friends and your relatives, those who don't know Christ? And what about those who are deluded, they're deceived by some false religion? What do they know about your life? Do they know that your life is in fact a devotion to Christ such that you would praise the Lord not just with your words, but that you show that praise in your devotion to him and your fulfillment and your obedience to the commands that he has given to you to be an effective member of the body of Christ? Will you praise the Lord like these three young men did, knowing that God will not only allow for, but perhaps has ordained that you would come across the path of someone who will hate you and could potentially destroy your body. And yet we are told not to fear the one who can destroy the body, but to fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul. Why should we fear him? Not only because he can destroy the body and the soul, but because he is the eternal one. He is the great and gracious, loving God of heaven who's cast his kindness upon his children. Verse 12 in our text says, young men and maidens together, old men and children. This covers the gamut, really. Young men, maidens, young men, young women, looking forward to new life, perhaps even together. Old men, those who are nearing the end of earthly life, and then children who are just starting to get out of that infancy fog that we're all born into. Let them praise the name of the Lord. But why? But why? I mean, we could easily go back to the three reasons that we've already looked at, but the psalmist gives us three more. First, 
because his name only is worthy. Listen to how he says it. For his name alone is exalted. Now, you say, I don't know. I mean, I've heard of plenty of other names being exalted. The point is that in contrast to the exaltation of the name of God in perspective of all eternity, no name is really exalted. All names will be put in proper perspective, in proper place, ultimately in light of the exaltation of the name of God. Second, his greatness is above his creation. We don't have time to go back and read all of Romans 1, but you know that in Romans 1, there are those who exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And what did they worship in his stead? Four-legged animals, which, by the way, were his creation. The text says, for his majesty is above earth and heaven. His majesty is above what he has created. His majesty is above the majesty of earth and the majesty of heaven. And so for that reason, let them praise the Lord. And then third, he has provided strength for his people. And this is, I believe, the most applicable element of this text for you and me today. He has provided strength for his people. Verse 14 finally says, He has raised up a horn for his people. Praise for all his saints, for the people of Israel who are near to him. See, Israel at this point had been humbled. Its horn had been degraded to the very dust. A horn was representative of the strength of the people and that when a horn was blown in battle, it was a signal. And the larger and the cleaner and the more powerfully blown the horn, hopefully the more fear was implanted in the hearts of the enemy. Israel's horn was depleted it had become useless. No one feared Israel. No one would run and cower at a horn being blown from Israel. From uh, commentator Spencer Jones, we read, Israel's horn had lost its heritage. It had dwelt in a strange land, this horn, a land of servitude far from the house and the home of God. Now it had been restored. Jerusalem had been rebuilt. Its walls again surrounded. Its worship had revived. The ransomed of the Lord had returned. It was once more a people near to Jehovah, gathering in his house and realizing his near presence with them. Let Israel lift up its voice of praise above every other. There's no disputing the reality that there is a future for Israel. There's a coming future of hope for spiritual Israel, but also for national Israel. We don't understand all the details of that, but we know it's coming. But what we do know in the here and now is that for those who are near to him, he grants them a horn of strength. He grants to them that which is expressive of the strength of God himself, Christ Jesus Christ is depicted as a horn in Luke 169, where we read, He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Where is your focus on a day-to-day basis? I would encourage you to begin every day by not just uttering these words, but at the moment of your first awakening, every day, to stop and remind yourself of those things that inevitably and involuntarily praise the Lord and choose to do so yourself because they do. Because of what God has created that is expressive of his unique ability to create them, how could we not praise him in light of what he has done? So to begin every day by uttering these words, maybe with someone in your household, maybe someone who's used to hearing you Start with something other than something positive in the morning. But to maybe make the switch, to establish that transition in your life today, in light of what God has done, and by the way, in light of who he is, that he is the existing one. You can trust him. He's not going away. He's not a moving target. He is the eternal one, and you can trust him. Why not start every day by saying, 
praise the Lord. But again, not in some sort of inane, mindless way, but to think about Psalm 148 and what he has said about himself. And then perhaps throughout the day to remind yourself of those things as well and to choose to praise him in light of who he is and what he has done. And how about in the evening? You know, last thing before you go into the dream world. To set your mind on that which is praiseworthy and to say those words, maybe even to say them out loud, praise the Lord. That's what the psalmist does. He does this in the last five psalms of the Hallel, the book of praise. He begins and he ends with these words, praise the Lord. He is worthy. Why don't we say it right now together, shall we? Praise the Lord. Let's say it again. Praise the Lord. One more time. Praise the Lord. Father, thank you that you are praiseworthy. What a rich, rich text. And we move so quickly through it. Lord, we thank you for those who have so faithfully dedicated their lives, not only to the hard work of geology and biology and paleontology and other things that are expressive of the need for us to understand those things better. But I thank you also for those folks who spoke in our conference this week who are committed to honesty. It's not only true of those of the world that they're often dishonest about the facts, but it can be true of Christians to be dishonest about the facts and to put undue and really inappropriate emphasis on things that we don't really know. So we thank you for that human humility given to us by Christ in his example. And I would ask, Lord, that you would move on our little church to be faithful to emphasize what we do know, and that is that you are praiseworthy, and that as a result, we would praise you in our speech, but that our lives would be reflective of what you have created, not simply involuntarily, but in what we choose to do with our lives, how we show ourselves to be faithful to you that ultimately those things would be expressive of your praiseworthiness. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.